okay. We're dealing with tough, life's tough questions. Uh, let me start with this. Why do you believe your history book? Like that U.S. history book, why do you believe it? Because you're required to. The government says I should. Those government conspiracy theories. We were really, we were raised what? Uh, knowing, it. N- knowing it. Okay, so we've been. It's been passed down from generation to generation. Good. How else do we believe? Why do we believe that the Constitution was actually written? Why do we believe the Declaration of Independence was actually written? The evidence, witnesses. Some of you have actually been to Washington D.C. Some of y'all done 201. Is that right? SOU 201s in D.C. Uh, so you've gone and maybe even seen it and looked at it and touched it and felt what could be considered one of the originals. Now, the reason I bring that up is the Bible, um, I teach an Old Testament class. This is my first time teaching it this semester. I've never taught it before. I normally teach youth ministry and church leadership. And so I have a lot of, uh, I teach it shorter, which you would assume it is a Christian school, but not everybody there is a Christian. And so I have some students in the class that aren't a Christian. And so I, every now and then I'll have them ask me questions, ask questions about the material or just uh, I had one time uh, last week I asked them, tell me what question would you ask God when you see God? And so it's really fun getting to see perspective because I've grown up in church my whole life. And so it's fun getting to see a different perspective than what I grew up. And one of the young ladies talked about the fact that this was a good history book. And. And so um, what I want to challenge us with, one of the questions we're going to deal with uh, is why do I need to believe the Bible? But what I want to do is go beyond just this being a good history book where a cucumber takes down a wall of a bunch of French peas. And good, somebody got that. I'm so glad. Because I was like, man, I'm really about to age myself. And I'm, I was really worried. Nobody go, what? I don't get it. That's Veggie Tales for those of you that aren't homeschooled. Okay. Um, and so... Uh, it's more than just a history book. There's, there's some real life to this. This thing is a living, breathing work. Um, it literally comes to life. Uh, it's not a, just a book of words that we read. Because history, what history does is it says, hey, this is what's happened. And if you want to not repeat it, you can do some of the same things or avoid some of the same things that they do. And that's part of what the Bible is. But the Bible is something even greater than that. It is literally God telling you about himself. He wants to show you himself. And so he goes from the very beginning of creation to really something we haven't even experienced yet, the end of creation, and everything in between and says, let me just show you who I am. Now, he does it through the narrative of history. And so we have a history part to it. Uh, But the book is ultimately about him more than it is about history. And so what I want to do tonight is take you through a um, definition, so to speak, of what the Bible is. Now, I wish I could lay claim to it, but I can't. I am going to build around it with some of my own research and uh, some other things I've found and collaborated together. But this book's called The Ever-Loving Truth, Can Faith Thrive in a Post-Christian Culture? It's written by a guy named Bodie Bauckham. Uh, there, I really like everything that he does, except for the part uh, related to youth ministry. He's a family integrated guy. He doesn't believe youth ministry should exist. Uh, God bless him. But um, he, uh, but everything else he does is just phenomenal. The one other book I'd recommend, and this is for you ladies, it's called "What He Must Be If He Wants to Marry My Daughter," 
What I would encourage you ladies to do is anytime a guy says, hey, do you want to go out? Hand him that book and say, write me a book report and then come back and then we'll talk. Uh, because that book is fascinating and it's awesome and it's all about guys. It's time to step up and be a man. And if you want to marry, he writes it from a perspective of a dad. But he's like, if you want to marry my daughter, you got to be a man's man. And you got to do these things and follow God this way. And I love that book. It's a really great book. And as a dad of two daughters, one of who's not here to defend herself, that's exactly what's going to happen in my house, okay? So um, I would encourage you to get that book, What He Must Be If He Wants to Marry My Daughter. But if you want to read about the Bible and its collaboration even further than what we go on tonight, this is a really good book. Um, it's, it's an older book. It's been around for a long time, but I just the words just really impacted my life. So we're going to talk about the definition he uses, and we're going to break it down a little bit. Okay, so for those of you that are filling in the blanks, the first blank is the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents. All right, so reliable collection of historical documents. We've kind of already addressed that. We're going to use a basis of our scripture. is going to be found in 2 Peter chapter 2. Um... Uh, and I think it's actually chapter 1, not chapter 2. Um, so I may have just misspoke there. Yeah, chapter 1, verse, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. So reliable collection of historical documents. Then grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to be at a couple of other places tonight too. Um, but we're going to deal with that first. So uh, we're going to break this down into a couple of different sections. So here we go. Uh, verse 16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So we're, um, they are historical documents in nature recording history, but there is a purpose behind this. That purpose is making known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We talk about the fact that this is a book about God. Luke even talks about that in Luke chapter 1. He's writing to Theophilus, uh, and he says, These are written in an orderly account so that I might tell you about Jesus. And that's my paraphrase, but you can look there as well if you want to. Uh, but he's trying to show them in Luke a chronological order of all the things that happened with Jesus. And in the process of that, he's going to tie back to the Old Testament and say there is fulfillment of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And we're going to look at an example of that here in just a minute. Uh, but what he's saying is it's written by men uh, in eyewitness accounts so that you can trust it. So let me ask you a question. Do you really believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4? Are you sure? No, nah, I'm pretty sure the answer is Jesus because we're in church. But uh, all right, do you really believe A squared plus B squared equals C squared? We had to yell it in our class. That's how my, my algebra teacher made me memorize that. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. All right. For those of you that have not had algebra yet, that's called the Pythagorean theorem. Uh, it's, you got extra. You didn't even get Bible today. You got a little math too. All right. So realistically, from a truth perspective and from a collaboration perspective, let me tell you a little bit about how this all came together. It should be impossible for us to have what we have in our hands. The truth collaborated together to show us about the power and love of Jesus Christ. All right, so let me share this with you. It was written on three different content, con content, continents. I'm going to get that out. It was written in Europe because we know Paul was in Rome. It was written in uh, Asia, and it was written in Africa because we know they experienced life in Egypt as well. So three different continents. It was written over th in three different languages. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. 
The New Testament's written in Greek, and there are small parts of it that are written in another language called Aramaic. So we have it in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. There are over 40 different authors in this Bible, the 66 books that we believe to be what we call the canon, the collected works uh, related to showing us God in the history. Covers over 15, it's 1,500 years worth of recorded documents, meaning if we start with Moses, we believe Moses wrote or contributed to most of Genesis, Exodus, and then obviously Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Genesis is everything prior to Moses, but most of that was oral tradition passed down. Uh, I can show you, we don't have time tonight, but I can show you based on the way those ages break down, even though there's multiple, multiple generations based on their ages, most of them were still around together. So theoretically, they would have been around their great, 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 great grandfather because they lived to be like 800 years old. So the, the idea of an oral tradition is not as inconceivable as uh, we might think it would be passing down from generation to generation and maybe getting lost. So three continents, 40 authors, 1,500 years, and yet there are over 23,000 archaeological digs and thousands of critics who have, been, have not been able to refute the contents of the Bible. The consistency of it from multiple languages uh, across multiple continents and thousands of years of history is really fascinating uh, how it all came together. Now, people saying that they don't believe the Bible or that it actually is uh, verifiable and factual, and we'll talk about some of that from a statistical standpoint in just a minute. Uh, Caleb mentioned it being eyewitness accounts. We've experienced U.S. history. Um, different contexts, but some people believe in revisionist history. They don't believe the, uh, the Holocaust actually existed. It didn't happen. It's, it was propaganda. It's a, fa- a fag- fragment or a figment of our imagination. I've actually been <clears throat> to Dachau. Some of you may have been overseas and been to Europe, Germany, and experienced one of the concentration camps. I've been to one. I've been to Dachau. Excuse me. I have been inside a gas chamber. I have seen the incinerators. I have seen what they used. I know it to be true that those things actually did take place. Some people would like you to believe otherwise, saying that it really didn't. But if you actually go and experience these things and see them with your own eyes, you can verify that those, ac- those locations and the, what is experienced can actually take place. You can actually do the same thing related to biblical history. There are places in Scripture that you can go to today and say, this is exactly where it took place. And some of the storyline, you can look across the landscape and go, oh, I can understand and see why this person would have this perspective on life and what was going on. The archaeological digs are just another example where we're not just looking above the earth, but we're actually looking below the earth and verifying some of those. One of them is a member of our church. Some of you may have know or may know Dr. Alan Hicks. He's one of the members of our church, an older guy. He likes to dig in the dirt. He is an archaeologist. He's working on a master's degree in archaeology. So if you want to talk about New Testament archaeology, he would talk your ear off. Have fun with that. <clears throat> he likes to talk about digging in the dirt. Okay, so um, you can trust the historical accounts of others, and I've seen the evidence of it. Um, even though I didn't experience it, I can trust what other people experience because I've been around it. All right, number next, number two. Um, I've given you a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. So in 2 Peter, verse 17, he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... 
the voice of, was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, he's quoting a passage that takes place in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. Now, Peter probably helped write Mark, so that, that would work. Uh, but Luke, being the investigator that he was, would go around and investigate and, and gain eyewitness accounts to build a collaborated chronolo chrono chronology. I'll get that word out today. Matthew would not have been there, but there were two other guys there other than Peter, um, James and John. We get that right. We almost said Andrew, and that would have been a bad for a Bible trivia, wouldn't it? Gotten those wrong. Uh, but Peter, James, and John were there at what was called the Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. So they're verifiable eyewitnesses accounts to that experience that he's talking about here in 2 Peter chapter 1. Related to the resurrection and to the crucifixion. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Was it just the 12? Can we really believe just the 12? Oh wait, there's more. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 says, and this is Paul talking, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the twelve. Okay, good, Cephas being Peter. That's, that's good, we would expect that. Oh, but wait, there's more. Look at verse 6. He says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, otherwise meaning dead. So it's not just the 12. There are over 500 people who were there at the time of Christ who actually saw a resurrected Jesus. So from a Roman soldier standpoint, if we're trying to shut up 12 people, we can shut up 12 people. It's really hard to shut up 500 people who witnessed the resurrected Christ and can share testimony and testify to it actually happening. So it's not just about saying one person was there and saw it. There were 500 other people that said, yeah, we were there too and we saw it. So multiple people are verifying truth and evidence of what's going on. That's what makes Christianity so unique is that you've got multiple accounts and eyewitnesses to this and they're collaborated in, together in Scripture. Now we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and then Paul who is not there at the cross and the resurrection but Jesus appeared to him later, what we know in Acts. There are verifiable evidence of what's taken place. <clears throat> we have James's brother, or Jesus' brother James as well in the New Testament. Uh, so we have multiple people within the context of Scripture. Christianity is unique to that because other religions don't have that. For example, Mormonism. We have to rely on one guy's account of what took place, John Smith. Based on his history, I'm not sure I necessarily believe it because based on his biographical history, he was a pathological liar before he experienced uh, truth uh, out in the, in the desert and came back. So Christianity has over 500 witnesses. Now we have over 500 million, and that's an exaggeration, different English translations, not to mention all the other different languages it could be written in. So how do we know that what we have here in uh, English, or if you're in the South, America, uh, is verifiable? How do I know that what these words right here are true? Because Jesus didn't speak English. There were some that argue with you that he spoke King James English, uh, but that's an old man joke. Sorry. Uh, 
what he spoke would have been Greek or Aramaic, actually. It was written in Koine Greek, which would be the common language of the day. So how do I know that what I got in Greek actually turned to English? Because here's the problem. I'll admit it. We don't have the original stuff. The original note or letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians, we don't have. What we have is copies of the original. All right, so now we're dealing with a problem. Dude, how do we know that the copies are actually just like the original? How do we know that what we have in the Old Testament, as old as it is, is actually verifiable? Because that's a lot of time period between back then to right now. Well, let me give you two examples. I'll give you the New Testament first, uh, and then I'll give you uh, the Old Testament. From a New Testament perspective, uh, the biblical manuscripts were done meticulously to the point that if someone skipped a word, meaning they were copying it, and they skipped a word, they wouldn't just throw it away. They would burn it so that nobody would get access to it. So they were very meticulous and would work to, and if they were writing on a page and they got to the bottom and made a mistake, they'd burn it and start over. So because of that, all the manuscripts that we have, we have 99.5% consistency across all the manuscripts that we have. Uh, we have, I have it written down, 600, or according to the Institute of Creation Research, we have 6,000 copies of reliable New Testament manuscripts. And out of those, we have an accuracy of 99.5%. So let me put that in perspective in real numbers that you and I can understand, because 99.5 doesn't mean anything to us. There are 184,590 words in the New Testament. Okay? That means that only 923 of them are off out of 184,590. And by 923, I'm not talking like big words like salvation, conviction, or some of those Holy Spirit we're talking like A, ands, and these for the most part. So it's really verifiable what we have, and it's reliable. The other good news is that even the earliest manuscripts, the copies are only about 100 years old from the original. Some are even 30 years old. They're very within the time frame of what we're dealing with as far as Scripture goes. Let me give you a contemporary example. Uh, some of you all have to read Homer's Iliad, Iliad and the Odyssey, that fascinating work, okay? The Iliad only has a 95% accuracy, and it is, I think, 500 years. I, mean, I have it written down here somewhere. Uh, it's even, it only has 600, here it is. It only has 643 reliable manuscripts. Remember, Scripture has 6,000. Iliad only has 643, and its closest original is 500 years. So, and we take that in English going, hey, we need to read this. This is a literal work. Like, it's, the, it's just like the original. So it's not quite. All right, so that's New Testament. Let me talk about Old Testament. Up until 1948, the, most, the closest thing we had to a complete Old Testament wasn't written in its original Hebrew. It was actually written in Greek. It was called the Septuagint. Uh, and you're like, okay, how can we trust Greek when it was actually written in Hebrew? And so your King James Bible, if you read King James, was translated based on the Greek Septuagint because it was translated in like 1611, 1618, somewhere in there. I think it's 1611 because I remember celebrating the 400-year anniversary not too long ago. Don't quote me on that because I'm not a man of church history. Uh, I teach youth ministry. So 400 years ago, they wrote it. Well, we didn't have um, Hebrew, the Hebrew version back then. All we had was the Greek. So your English Bibles now are written based on Hebrews because of a fascinating discovery in 1948 called the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was found in caves in Qumran. So we began to highly question whether or not the Greek translations that we had 
were actually accurate or not. Well, they found these things called the Masoretic Text in the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls. They were written in Hebrew meticulously, just like I described for you earlier, written by the monks, based on the New Testament. What they found was is that the translations that we had from the Septuagint were actually really accurate to what we found in the Masoretic Text. We did not lose or change anything from the time period of the Masoretic Text, which would have been like 200-300 B.C., uh, prior to the Septuagint, um, we were actually doing really, really well. And what was really beneficial based on the Qumran text and the Dead Sea Scrolls was Isaiah. That was where our biggest trouble was, was Isaiah. We didn't have enough of Isaiah. We were taking it from uh, commentators from the early 1st century A.D. and then from, again, the Septuagint. We got a lot of Dead Sea Scroll Hebrew text on Isaiah. So the reliability of even the Old Testament, which is 15, now 3,500 years ago, is really reliable uh, based on just statistical analysis of its literary work. So the eyewitnesses accounted to something special. Uh, so let's talk about odds. What are the odds that reliable eyewitnesses' accounts are actually fulfilling what we're going to talk about next, which is Old Testament prophecy? So let me give you a couple of odds. The odds of you being struck by lightning is 1 in 3,000, just in case you wanted to know. The odds of you winning the Mega Millions lottery is two, 1 in 259 million. You actually have better odds of being struck by lightning more than once than winning the lottery, just in case you wanted to know. Now, this is encouraging. The odds of becoming a New York Times bestseller is 1 in 220. You actually have very high odds in becoming a New York Times bestseller. So, uh, there you go. The odds of becoming president is 1 in 10 million. <laughs> This is important. I'm going to teach you some life-changing stuff here. The odds of dying from contact with hot tap water is 1 in 5 million 505,000, excuse me, 5 million 5,564. You can die from touching hot tap water. So the next time your mom tells you to take a bath, say, Mom, I better not. I might die. Okay? The odds of you, this is really, this is great stuff here. The odds of, that you will die from a collision of an asteroid hitting the earth in the next 100 years. It could happen. One in 500,000. You have a better chance of getting hit by an asteroid in the next 100 years than winning the lottery. Just shows you how likely it is that you will win the lottery one day. So before you buy that lottery ticket, buy some life insurance because you might get hit by an asteroid instead. <laughs> Okay, so those are just some random weird odds. So let me give you the next thing, number three. Uh, the witnesses and or others who report supernatural events that fulfill specific prophecies. Okay, the Old Testament does not predict what the New Testament's going to happen. Okay, that's not their job. What their job was in the Old Testament is to say, this is what God's word is. The New Testament's job is to go, hey, you remember what you read in the Old Testament? That's what's going on right now. All right, so let me give you one example from Matthew. Matthew chapter 27, and then we'll talk about the odds. Y'all good with me so far? We all right? Good. Okay, Matthew 27, verse 27. Uh, no, back up. Uh, Tells his death. I'm getting there. Oh, I'm in 26. That's why. Uh, 
My numbers are wrong. I'm going to get it. I've got to find it. Oh, there it is. Verse 46. Sorry. I gave you the whole section. I'm not going to read the whole section. Chapter 20, Matthew 27, verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Okay? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what we read that is, oh, God has left him. God has turned his back. Oh, contraire, mon frere. <laughs> I beg to differ. Let's go to Psalm 22, shall we? Flip over to Psalm 22. Let me show you what Jesus did. And this is just one example of many. Uh, I'll give you a couple of others just for kicks. Um, we won't turn there for sake of time, and I hate doing that, but I'm going to be nice to Eric and not make him get duct taped by a bunch of middle schoolers. All right, so Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 22, verse, wait, what? I just read this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Rather than quoting the entire psalm because he's dying on a cross, what he's doing is saying, hey, everybody, turn to Psalm 22. That's how he would do it. They didn't have a Psalm 22 back then. They just knew the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All right, so let me read you a couple of things in Psalm 22, uh, and it may sound familiar to you. Uh, but I am, verse 6, 7, and 8, But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make, my, make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I believe the Pharisees said that to him as they were walking by. Uh, verse, 20, or verse 12 is an insinuation. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. The idea of a, a big enemy. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones, bones are bones. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is melts like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust to death. Uh, descriptions of crucifixion, even though crucifixion based on this passage wouldn't be invented until 600 years later by someone not an Israelite. It actually was per, per, uh, invented by the Persians and perfected by the Romans. Uh, you remember he said, I thirst? It's because his roof was sticking to the roof of his mouth and he wanted to speak. Let me tell you what he was going to say. Verse 31, it says, They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Or, in other words, it is finished. He's quoting Psalm 22. What he's doing is what the New Testament is doing is showing you that the emotions that were the 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 psalmist in Psalm 22 were facing, which is heartache and pain in the midst of what's going on, is the same thing that Jesus was facing in Psalm in the New Testament. What the rest of Psalm 22 says is not, "Oh God, well oh God, why have you forsaken me?" It is, "God, I'm going to praise you regardless of my circumstance and regardless of the enemies that are surrounding me right now, because I'm going to make your name known to all the nations." What is happening on the cross is an opportunity for all nations to receive Christ, and that's exactly what Jesus is portraying in Psalm 22. So, Eyewitness accounts for supernatural events that are fulfillment of specific Old Testament prophecies. Let me give you two more. Micah 5.8 says that he will be born in Bethlehem. Uh, the, the ideal king that's to come will be born in Bethlehem. That's unique because if he's in the lineage of David, let's say he's King David, uh, that would have mean he would have been born in Jerusalem because that's where all the kings were born. So the fact that he was born in Bethlehem and Micah saying that is odd 
and yet it's fulfilled in the New Testament. And then Zechariah tells us that he will ride on a colt, a donkey's child, unridden. Uh, that's in Zechariah. We know that happens on Palm Sunday, that a colt, he, he rides in on a colt. So they're fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Now, what are the likelihoods of this? They, the numbers vary. Uh, there are some that would say that there are 480 prophecies. This was a conservative um, Old Testament or Messianic Jew uh, that believes in uh, Scripture. There are some that believe there are thousands of prophecies. There's my number. 456, according to Jewish scholar Alfred Herdsheim, and that comes from an article in, on BibleGateway.com. While a guy named Payne in, a, in the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy list 1,817 prophecies. Okay, So let me just break this down for you. Whether it's 456 or 1,817, I'm almost done. Um, let's just focus on 48 of them. Let's just do 10% of the conservative value. The odds of 48 prophecies being fulfilled. Um, scientific notation. Y'all ready? Y'all know what that is? Okay. Because I can't write this number. 1 in 10 to the 157th power. 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Which means, for those of you that don't add scientific notation, you don't know what that means. You would write the 10, and then you would write 157 zeros after that. Just to fulfill 48 of the Messianic prophecies that says Jesus was who he says it was. The, the conservative Jew says there, he, that Jesus fulfilled 486 or, will, or 456 of them. We're just talking about 48. The idea that Jesus could fulfill these even just remotely is astronomically just mind-boggling. And yet here it is in Scripture telling us this. So let me conclude with this. Number four is authors claim the text is divine, not human in origin. Authors claim the text is divine, not human in origin. Here's what that means. It comes from God. This is more than just a history book. This is God showing your, himself to you. And in the process, he's saying, and I am exactly who I said I am. I have done everything I said I was going to do. And in the back of the book, I've said there's more coming, and I'm going to do that too. Now, a history book just says, yeah, that's all good. Thanks for showing me and telling me. But this book is a little bit different than a history book. This book has authority behind it. Because not only does it come, it does come from God, but God is asking you to read it and then therefore respond to him. So when we say, when it says that you must, um, when, Jesus, when uh, Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, he actually quotes Joel, again, another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and it says in Acts chapter 2, it says that they were cut to the core, and it says to any the people, the crowd responds to Peter, what must we do with what you've told us about Jesus? And he says, you need to repent and be baptized. What he's saying is you've got to change. You've got to give your life to Jesus. And so when we read scripture and we read what we've read about eyewitness accounts and that it's actually happened and people saw it, people experienced it, and it's not just a cool story, it actually is real and it's real life and God is screaming at us, respond to me. That's exactly what Peter was telling the people, hit the crowd that he was with that day in Acts chapter 2. Repent, turn to God, follow him. You can trust him. You can trust the Bible. So 
a reliable collection of documents written in the time of eyewitnesses during the lifetime of eyewitnesses uh, that fulfill specific prophecies uh, and authors claim the text is divine, not human in origin. Mm -hmm.